thousand sunsets from ten thousand morning, ten thousand chances to live the right way. But I would trade all my ten thousand sunsets. I could be like Jesus for one single day. I'd walk on the water and heal the sick children, feed all the hungry, give sight to the blind. I'd turn all the cannons and guns into flowers, turn all the whiskey to sacrament wine. That's what I'd do. That's what I'd do. Ten million stars are shining above. But I would trade off my ten thousand rainbows. I could be like Jesus and give all my love. I'd remind the people that hate is an evil thing. Laugh at the children and tell them a tale. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. In our last report, we reviewed a sampling of the little-known history of the founding of Christian mass media in the 20th century by American big business industrialists to defeat the New Deal and worker rights and social safety nets. This was taken from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News which is available now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and elsewhere. In that report, we added biographical details about the leading second-generation national Christian media leader, Billy James Hargis, the mentor to Jerry Falwell and many other founders of the modern religious right, his association with seditionist General Edwin Walker, and his own implications of racist terrorism, and his downfall as a moral crusader due to his kinky immorality at his Christian school, as well as covering the additional details of the societal impact of Howard Kirshner's Christian Economics Organization, and influence of its industrial kingpin financier, J. Howard Pugh of Sunoco. In this report, we will resume our recitation from the narrative of my book, continuing to briefly consider the findings of the book The Conservative Press in the 20th Century America and further details they report about Christian economics and its founder, Howard Kirshner, its relationship to the aforementioned Reverend James Fifield and his spiritual mobilization organization, and its impact on the modern-day religious right movement, including data from their CIA case files. We now resume the narrative from my book regarding this reference. 
Now, they continue to state that, quote, Kirshner moved to California, where the Reverend James F. Fifield Jr. of the First Congregational Church of Los Angeles and former head of spiritual mobilization secured an appointment for him in his church as Minister of Applied Christianity. In the spring of 1967, Kirshner moved the editorial office of Christian Economics to Los Angeles and found renewal in the conservative environment of Fifield's church. Unquote. Stepping away from CFF in the early 1970s after the death of Pew, as CFF or the Christian Freedom Foundation began to pursue a more youthful audience. In 1971, its new publication, For Real, was advertised as a Christian, quote, underground newspaper, funded by corporate America, of course, that, quote, aimed at high school and college students and claiming a circulation of more than 100,000, unquote. They also add that Richard DeVos, the founder of the Christian multimedia marketing business Amway and father-in-law of Trump's Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, quote, and a group of fellow conservatives acquired control of CFF in 1975, and Ed McAteer, formerly a district sales manager for Colgate Palmolive Company, became a field representative and seminar organizer for CFF the following year. They also note that McAteer, quote, became a catalyst for organizing the new right among evangelicals and fundamentalists. Later, he was instrumental in bringing Howard Phillips together with fundraiser Richard Vigory and evangelist Jerry Falwell to found the Moral Majority, and that McAteer followed that by establishing the Religious Roundtable in 1979. Now, the book editors and writers also briefly write about Christianity Today and their patron pew, and how, as what is considered as the more moderate neo-evangelical main party organ, they too promised a pro-business Christian libertarianism within their pages, including showcasing Kirshner himself as one of their voices. They note that in a 1966 article, quote, Howard Kirshner argued that Jesus had commanded Christians to go into the world and preach the gospel, but that did not mean in the Peace Corps or civil disobedience, unquote. Not surprisingly, given their flagship figurehead Billy Graham and his close associations with powerful figures, including President Nixon and other presidents, Christianity Today boldly defended President Nixon and his innocence during Watergate until it became laughable to do so, and then applauded President Ford for pardoning him so his crimes would not be brought to justice. They have traditionally praised libertarian stalwarts, Friedrich Heydrich, Henry Hazlitt, and Milton Friedman. In the 1958 article, again in Christianity Today, Christian Approached Economics, Irving Howard of the Christian Freedom Foundation, CFF, argues for capitalism and argues that, quote, inequality in wealth is part of God's providence or plan, unquote. Somehow related to the Garden of Eden, thus, quote, restricting freedom or demanding equality would be contrary to God's principles for the world and thus immoral and limit government to a police function. 
Now, L. Nelson Bell, who was the father-in-law of uh, uh, Billy Graham and helped found Christianity Today, L. Nelson Bell wrote in Christianity Today, CT, in 1968, that enlisting the power of the government leads, quote, straight to the concept of a socialistic state, unquote. They cite CT editorials against organized labor, arguing that, quote, labor forces illegitimate restrictions on capital and gets its way through government coercion, unquote. Another editorial in 1958 characterized the, quote, payoffs, threats, blackmail, violence, and disruption as major characteristics of the labor movement. While not reporting on abuses within the ranks of management, other proposals within its pages called for the replacement of, quote, welfare statism with voluntary church welfare and philanthropy with a 1960 editorial claiming that welfare programs were inherently anti-Christian, and in 1974 that, quote, the welfare state saps individual initiative, increases the size and cost of sustaining bureaucracy, and, quote, assures some form of totalitarian control that spells the death of democracy. It should be no surprise that the Central Intelligence Agency CIA, maintained files on the influential Christian economics periodical. A number of links to their recently declassified files on the subject Christian economics can be found in their reading room online. In one entry labeled Christian economics, which appears to comprise a short article from the periodical and republished by the Clovis, New Mexico News Journal newspaper in 1954, with it actually declassified in 2000, entitled, an article entitled Soft Thinkers, author, quote, Alan W. Dulles, director, Central Intelligence Agency, unquote, complained that, quote, neutrals and soft thinkers are often a greater danger than avowed communists, unquote, and focused on front organizations, Soviet Russia and funded to conceal the real power of the communist conspiracy. He reiterated that, quote, today is not the open communist, the admitted follower of Marx and Lenin, who is likely to trip us up. It is the neutralist, the soft thinkers, the agrarian reformers, the welfare staters, and collectivists who merely decry the methods but are blind to the aims of international communism, unquote. Now, Alan Dulles should know a lot about front organizations. He formed an innumerable amount, including the mighty Wurlitzer of U.S. media control using Operation Mockingbird and CIA assets Paley and Luce as heads of CBS and Time, respectively, that were taking orders from Dulles and the CIA directly to provide news to the American public that only the CIA approved, as an official PSYOP on their own citizens that paid their salaries. Now, a lengthier entry in the CIA records is an actual copy of Christian Economics from 1960, which was declassified and approved for release in 2004. In it, the, quote, voice of the editor, presumably Kirshner, entitled, 
quote the Marxian trend, it lamented a pay raise for federal employees. Their neighbors who raise their families on lower to middle income pay to help run their federal courts, inspect their food, repair their highways and railroads, keep airplanes from crashing, and the like. They associate such with, quote, pork barrel spending, along with welfare handouts for social security beneficiaries and numerous numerous other segments of our population. They say that others went on the gravy train and that sadly, quote, their pleas appeal to the sense of justice of the American people and are granted a, quote, sense of justice, including economic varieties, these libertarian business barons hope to eradicate from the public conscience. They say our nation has become, quote, a nation of thieves, such as by receiving biannual pay raises as opposed to CEOs, whom we know work for free for the benefit of society. They say it is covetousness, and there is no foreseeable end to this practice short of ruinous inflation and bankruptcy. I, for one, believe in physical responsibility, both in government and in our homes, and in balanced budgets, which will require both drastic reductions and high-end pork barrel spending and defense, that benefits only a few, and tax rates restored for the affluent to historical norms. But these Christian visionaries use the most disrespectable and ugly means to make such cause, and for all the wrong reasons and for all the wrong people. In terms of the imminent, quote, ruinous inflation and bankruptcy, that may overtake us eventually, all the while still paying low taxes by the wealthy. But in terms of the accuracy of their vision in 1960 of imminent, 59 years later, we are struggling under the ruinous rate of almost 2% inflation. At least at the time I wrote this in 2019, and now back down to about 3%. And government wages that have not risen in real dollars or for all of Americans for that matter, only the disparity in income and assets of the top 1% and the remaining 99 and skyrocketing deficits along with reduced upper-tier taxes are becoming ruinous. A mission accomplished for these libertarian advocates for the deserving achievers, i.e. society's aristocrats. Their fear is that this trend, quote, will reduce us toward a basis of equality wherein gifted men and women are not rewarded in proportion to their exceptional abilities. No society can long endure which denies to its exceptionally creative people sufficient reward to stimulate them to their best endeavors, unquote. So is giving federal workers a few percent and cost of living raises going to deny the gifted their ability to receive their largesse? And by the way, does not the term gifted suggest to some degree why all should be rewarded to some level for exceptional dedication and work, ingenuity and vision, that at least some of their abilities are a gift from God for all our mutual benefit? 
and not just for their excessive enrichment. Most of their gifted sponsors receive their wealth via inheritance and such. Now, the author's ingenious, virtuous, and visionary answer to the gall of federal workers desiring a few percent cost of living raise to keep up with inflation is that, quote, public employees should receive rather less than the normal scale available to private employees. If they should feel aggrieved by reason of this fact, the remedy is always to seek employment in privately owned industry, like real virtuous people do, or in the professions and as managers of small businesses, unquote. Now these inadequately intelligent and inadequately wise libertarians, such as this column's author, should have recognized that due to the law of the jungle, laws of supply and demand and in their free markets, their recommendation would cause a refusal of qualified people to be so abused in these essential jobs, or it will attract lesser capable or dedicated people, further adding to the public dissatisfaction with the performance of government agencies. The author adds that with the employer, whatever they're willing to pay is the just and proper wage for him to receive, and that, quote, there is less temptation to covet. The goal appears to be to pay the bare minimum, even though the one on the losing end is part of the national collective that is deciding to pay himself the poverty wage. Does this system at large reduce the temptation to covet of the robber barons, corporate CEOs, owners, Wall Street hedge fund speculators, or mine owners, whose financial means of their worker or customers is theirs for the taking? When the overwhelming majority of society does not have enough assets to survive a month. Is there a fair and free negotiation going on for a fair wage? For them with the establishment that will hold out until somebody breaks in desperation, like the Dust Bowl migrant workers. Now we're going to take a break from our narrative from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, the Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News, which is available in print and ebook form at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other retailers. And I encourage you to obtain a copy and study it to consider how its historical findings explain the out-of-touch mindset of today's religious right, as opposed to the supposed religious tenets they follow. When we resume this discussion, we will see how this Christian robber baron mouthpiece Christian economics applies their values in the sphere of foreign relations. However, our next segment will be our normal mid-show contemporary intelligence briefings. And before that, however, it is time for some music for meditation. With all this talk of the glorification of business covetousness and money-making obsession, sanctified by shoehorning it into a Christian ethic, whose founder said that all those things would soon pass away, as the Christian economics and other religious right media stars try to do anyway, it made me think of one external ploy of the great city Babylon in Mammon that took the evangelical community by storm, that being the 
gimmicks of multi-level marketing, and the granddaddy of them all, the self-imagined, Christ-like Amway Corporation. I've seen it in churches over the years. Someone overhears you're looking to address your financial matters, and the next thing is they've got you to dinner, they've taken their easel out, and are drawing pictures of imagining vacations with no thought of finances when you get their pitch. These programs, these multi-level programs, turn desperate participants into looking at all church folk, family members, friends, and other acquaintances as mere business leads, and defining one's own worth by how much soap one peddles or gets other desperate people to sign up in their pyramid. A testament to the intoxication of Babylon wealth obsession. I somehow got my hands onto a recording of a song by one of their members, Pat Boone, the performer, at one of their member-only conventions, which are typically not labeled at the local Holiday Inn, sort of like a Scientology gathering, of whom I am sure himself was well compensated for his appearance. Now here this Vegas act, who markets himself as a Christian family man, uh, extolling the virtues of measuring oneself by the financial accomplishments of others in competition and obsession in wealth building. And then we'll be back to the Two Spies Report. Well, I was going along happy as I could be. At least I thought I was happy as I could be. Paying off a mortgage and working at a nine to five. Sound familiar? My kids, my bills, my problems kept growing. Couldn't seem to keep the old cash flow flowing. But I thought that was all the bottom line to just being alive. Then a neighbor asked me over for a little demonstration. Before I even finished with the product demonstration, my eyes were bugging out at a future I could see was mine. He drew some little circles, he painted me a dream. Though I knew it couldn't be as easy as it seemed, I bought myself a kit and I signed on the dotted line. I was Amway. I was Amway. I can be better than I am way. I'm tired of being delayed. I'm sick of being betrayed. Now, thank God, I've been Amway. <laughs> Well, I signed up my mama, a couple of friends, went to some meetings on a couple of weekends, and mainly just waited for the money to come rolling in. Where was it? Oh, I didn't know the products, couldn't show the plan, about to let the dream slip right through my hands, just a great big vacuum where a business ought to have been. But then a buckle down started doing it right, having little meetings about every other night. My wife and I building a business and giving it heck, I mean. <laughs> We worked pretty hard, built up the PV, hit 7,500 one month and three, and in no time at all, it seemed, we went direct, and that was fun. We were Amway, we were Amway, I can be better than I am way. I'm tired of being delayed, I'm sick of being betrayed, now, thank God, I've been Amway. <laughs> now comes the really good part. Well, I paid off the bills, bought a new place, we paused at Pearl, got a diamond in place. Barely can set a new goal for it's in our hands. With all the new folks that were signing up daily, we're gonna catch up with old Chuck and Gene Straley. Then we're gonna pass Bill Britt and Uncle Jim Jans. Yeah, we're never gonna stop with a thousand directs. We're gonna move on up there with Birdie and Dex. And even after that, I can think of a brand new cause. Yeah. 
We've gotten so used to expanding horizons, I'm sure you folks won't find it surprising. We're chasing Jay Van Andel and Rich DeVos. Move over, fellas. We were Amway. Amway. We were Amway. Amway. I could be better than I am, Way. I'm tired of being delayed. I'm sick of being betrayed now. Thank God. I've been Amway. Sing it with me. I've been Amway. 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 I can be better than I am, Way. I'm tired of being delayed. I'm sick of being betrayed now. Thank God. I've been Amway. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. In this segment of the report, we are going to examine a contemporary case file issue of recent reports of direct bearing on the spiritual status of our society. This week we will explore a recent article from a female writer at the Washington Post that has gotten a lot of buzz as to putting a finger on the root nature of a modern social problem simmering just under the surface of our society. That being the universally recognized shiftless and adrift nature of many of today's young men, and the perilous future and impact they have at times on the rest of society. In her July 10, 2023 opinion essay, quote, Men are lost. Here's a map out of the wilderness, unquote, by Christine Emba there, in this edited excerpt here, she writes that, quote, I've started noticing it a few years ago. Men, especially young men, are, are getting weird. It may have been the incels who first caught my attention, spewing self-pitying venom online, sometimes venturing out to attack the women they believed had done them wrong. It may have been the complaints from the women around me, Men are in their flop era, one lamented, sick of trying to date in a pool that seems shallower than it should be. It may have been the new ways companies were trying to reach men. The average hoodie made these days is weak, flimsy, growled a YouTube ad for a tactical hoodie. You are not a child, you're a man, so stop wearing so many layers to go outside. And I could see a bit of curdling in some of the men around me, too. They struggled to relate to women. They didn't have enough friends. They lacked long-term goals. Some guys, including ones I once knew, just quietly disappeared, subsumed into video games and porn or sucked into the alt-right and the web of misogynistic communities known as the manosphere. The weirdness manifested in the national political scene, too. In the 4chan-fueled 2016 campaign for Donald Trump. In the backlash to Me Too. In amateur militias during the Black Lives Matters protest. Misogynistic text thread chatter took physical form in the Proud Boys, some of whom attacked the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Young men everywhere were trying on new identities, many of them ugly, all gesturing toward a desire to belong. 
It felt like a widespread identity crisis, as if they didn't know how to be. Well, as early as 1835, Washington Irving Irving lamented the new American upper class's tendency to, quote, send our youth abroad to grow luxurious and effeminate in Europe. His alternative? Quote, a previous tour on the prairies would be more likely to produce that manliness, most in unison with our political institutions. Well, skip ahead a few decades, and new worries about faltering masculinity turned into an obsession with fitness. An October 1920 uh, issue of Physical Culture magazine advertised to men instructions on how to square your shoulders, and to women some advice. Shall I marry him? A lesson in eugenics. Still, by 1958, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. warned that Quote, the male role has plainly lost its rugged clarity of outline. Writing in Esquire magazine, he added, The ways by which American men affirm their masculinity are uncertain and obscure. There are multiplying signs, indeed, that something has gone badly wrong with the American male's conception of himself. Now, worrying about the state of our men is an American tradition. But today's problems are real and well-documented. Deindustrialization, automation, free trade, and peacetime have shifted the labor market dramatically, and not in men's favor. The need for physical labor has declined, while soft skills and academic credentials are increasingly rewarded. Growing numbers of working-age men have detached from the labor market, with the biggest drop in employment amongst men ages 25 to 34. For those in a job, wages have stagnated everywhere except the top. Meanwhile, women are surging ahead in school and in the workplace, putting a further dent in the provider model that has been ingrained in our conception of masculinity. Men now receive about 74 bachelor's degrees for every 100 awarded to women. And men account for more than 70% of the decline in college enrollment overall. In 2020, nearly half of women reported in a TD Ameritrade study that they out-earn or make the same amount as their husbands or partners, a huge jump from fewer than 4% of women in 1960. Then there's the domestic sphere. Last summer, a Psychology Today article caused a stir online by pointing out that Quote, dating opportunities for heterosexual men are diminishing as relationship standards rise. No longer dependent on marriage as a means to financial security or even motherhood, as a growing number of women are choosing to create families by themselves with the help of reproductive technology, women are increasingly selective, leading to a rise in lonely single young men more of whom now live with their parents than a romantic partner. Men also account for almost three of every four deaths of despair, either from a suicide, alcohol abuse, or an overdose. And while the past 50 years have been revolutionary for women, the feminist movement championed their power, and an entire academic discipline emerged to theorize about gender and excavate women's history. 
there hasn't been a corresponding conversation about what role men should play in a changing world. At the same time, the increasing visibility of the LGBTQ plus movement has made the gender dynamic seem less stable, less defined. Because men still dominate leadership positions in government and corporations, many assume they're doing fine and bristle at male complaint. After all, all 45 U.S. presidents have been male, and men still make up more than two-thirds of Congress. A 2020 analysis of the S&P 500 found that there were more CEOs named Michael or James than there were female CEOs, period. Women are still dealing with historical discrimination and centuries of male domination that haven't fully accounted for or been rectified. Are we really worrying that men feel a little emasculated because their female classmates are doing well? But millions of men lack access to that kind of power and success. And downstream, cut loose from a stable identity is patriarchs deserving of respect, they feel demoralized and adrift. The data show it, but so does the general mood. Men find themselves lonely, depressed, anxious, and directionless. Past models of masculinity feel unreachable or socially unacceptable. New ones have yet to crystallize. What are men for in the modern world? What do they look like? Where do they fit? These are social questions, but also ones with major political ramifications. Whatever self-definition men settle on will have enormous impact on society. Only one group seems to have no doubts about offering men a plan. In 2018, curious about a YouTube personality who had seemingly become famous overnight, I got tickets, the author, to a sold-out lecture in D.C. by Jordan Peterson. It was one of dozens of stops on the Canadian psychology professor turned anti-woke juggernauts book tour for his surprise bestseller, 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Crisis. The crowd was at least 85% male. The remainder seemed to be made of long-suffering girlfriends plus moms who had brought their sons in hopes that they'd shape up. In my opinion... Peterson served up fairly banal advice. Stand up straight. Delay gratification. His evolutionary biology and form take ranged from amusingly weird to mildly insulting. Suddenly, the 20-something guy in front of me swung around. Jordan Peterson, he told me without a hint of irony in his voice, taught me how to live. If there's a vacuum in modeling manhood today, Peterson has been one of the boldest in stepping up to fill it. He has gained fame, notoriety, and millions of book sales in the process. And he's only one of many right-aligned masculinity gurus, of better and worse quality, who have amassed huge audiences over the past decade. Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican of Missouri, attracted significant notice for a 2021 speech railing against the left's supposed attacks on traditional masculinity and translated the idea into a book that blames, quote, the tribunes of elite opinion for the collapse of American manhood and masculine strength. 
Hawley's Manhood book went on sale in May. There are fringier individuals, such as the online figure known as, quote, Bronze Age Pervert, or BAP for short. His real name is Costin Alamaru, who became cult famous for his Twitter feed, a stream of far-right culture war takes interspersed with homoerotic photos of bodybuilders. BAP's self-published 2018 manifesto, Bronze Age Mindset, teaches readers how to, in the words of its Amazon description, escape genocracy and ascend to fresh mountain air, unquote. Through a mix of Nietzsche, questionable readings of antiquity, and a regimen of sun and steel, that is, weightlifting and uh, going outside. A positive review from Trump administration official Michael Anton turned it into a sign reading for young conservative elites. Some right-wing models tip over into the obviously unsavory. Last year brought the rise of Andrew Tate, the kickboxer and failed Big Brother contestant turned massive social influencer whose extreme misogyny got him booted from TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. He's a caricature of masculinity, constantly shouting about his sport cars and women, multiples of each, naturally, a cigar surgically attached to his hand. But his advice about how to become an alpha male attracted an enormous following of teenage boys, to the point that schools were circulating information about how to counteract his messages in the classroom. Now, I went to that 2018, the author, Peterson appearance as a skeptic. But his appeal, along with that of his fellow manfluencers, has become clearer since. What's notable first is their empathy. For all Peterson's barking and lately unhinged tweeting, he's clearly on young men's side. He validates his followers' struggles and confusion. He also tells them why they're still needed and why they matter. No, it's not just you. School is tailored to girls. Yes, it does suck that a house and a family feel so out of reach. You're right. It is harder to be a man today. This is especially compelling in a moment when many young men feel their difficulties are often dismissed out of hand as whining from a patriarchy that they don't feel a part of. For young men in particular, the assumption of a world built to serve their sex doesn't align with their lived experience. Where girls outachieve them from pre-K to postgraduate studies and men are trash is an acceptable joke. And then there's the point-by-point advice. If young men are looking for direction, these influencers give them a clear script to follow. Hours of video, thousands of book pages, a torrent of social media posts, in a moment when uncertainty abounds. These rules aren't particularly unique. Get fit, pick up a skill, talk to women instead of watching porn all day. Plus, the community that comes with joining a fandom can feel like a buffer against an increasingly atomized world. As one therapist told me, I have used Jordan Peterson to turn a boy into a man. I used him to turn this guy without a strong father figure into someone who, yes, makes his bed and stands up straight and is now successful. The book, she said, 
do provide a structure that was clearly missing. It's also important that the approach of these male models is both particular and aspirational. The Baps and the Hawleys find ways to celebrate aspects of the male experience, from physical strength to competitiveness to, or sex as a motivator. That other parts of modern society have either derided as toxic or attempted to explain aren't specific to men at all. At their best, these influencers highlight positive traits that were traditionally associated with maleness, protectiveness, leadership, emotional stability, and encourage them, making masculinity out to be real and necessary thing, and its acquisition something honorable and desirable. And the fact that they're willing to define it outright feels bravely countercultural. Now, as one admiring reviewer of BAP's Bronze Age Mindset puts it, quote, a piratical man of adventure who attempts to engineer a coup in the United States, sleeps with Vladimir Putin's wife, and then dies fighting the U.S. empire alongside wild tribesmen in Afghanistan. A similar energy infused a documentary called The End of Men by now former Fox News personality Tucker Carlson, a trailer for which captivated the internet in the spring of 2022. Bathed in soft lighting and accompanied by a military soundtrack, ripped shirtless figures, flipped massive tires, shotguns, wrestled each other and chugged raw eggs. A fully nude man stood on a mountaintop, head tipped back and arms outstretched, his genitals obscured by what looked like a giant USB stick emitting red light. Even as masculinity comes under attack, real men still exist, and this blonde, chiseled, violent is what they look like. Despite, despite what woke and presumably clothed society might tell you, male dominance is the natural order of things. Without it, the world will fall apart. This is where the right-wing vision of masculinity runs off the rails. Much of the content in the online men's spaces is misogyny, masquerading as being simply pro-male, advocating a return to a strict hierarchy in which a particular kind of man deserves to rule over everyone else. Decent advice becomes an on-ramp to darker viewpoints. You can get from Tate urging his followers to work hard to his announcing that women are property within seconds. Meanwhile, politicians such as Hawley are eager to ascribe men's increasing dysfunction to malice on the part of women, progressives, and elites, instead of the true cause, major social, economic, and cultural changes that in some cases began with conservatives and in others, like the Equal Pay Act, were long overdue moves toward justice. And for all the overheated rhetoric deployed to engage men's sympathies, what's mainly on offer is the impossible suggestion that they reenact the lives of their grandfathers led, followed by encouragement to blame society when that inevitably fails. Social identity theory says that people inherently protect their identities, and when their identities are aligned in public, the natural response is to stand up for what they see as fundamental to their being. Is your masculinity being challenged? 
act even more masculine, defend masculinity more aggressively than ever before, glorify its stereotypes, even the worst ones. Of course, a masculinity defined solely in oppression to women, or to the gains of feminism, more specifically, doesn't provide a true roadmap to the future. Perhaps most alarmingly, many of the visions of masculinity these figures are pushing are wildly antisocial, untethered to any idea of good. Men are urged to situate themselves in a mythic story in which the world was always meant to be under their control. The fact that it no longer is becomes fuel for defensiveness and a victim complex, one that has corrosive and tragic effects. For all its humor, Bronze Age mindset is unquestionably racist, violent, and homophobic. Its definition of masculinity is predicated on nihilism, barbarism, and the subjugation of others. In Tate's proud misogyny and disdain for social norms, it turns out, weren't just harmless play-acting. Last month, he was indicted in Romania on charges of human trafficking, rape, and forming an organized criminal group. Now, I kept hearing that many would still find some kind of normative standard of masculinity meaningful and useful, if only to give them a starting point from which to expand. Scott Galloway agrees. On his podcast and in his newsletter, the author, entrepreneur, and professor at New York University's Stern Business School has made a specialty of talking about the crisis of unattached, rudderless young men and helping them aspire to more. Quote, I, I mean, there are certain attributes around masculinity that we should embrace. Men think about sex more than women. Use that as motivation to be successful and meet women. Women are more impulsive. Men will run out into a field and get shot up and think they're saving their buddies. Where I think this conversation has come off the tracks is, is where being a man is essentially trying to ignore all masculinity and act more like a woman. And even some women who say that, they don't want to have sex with those guys. They may believe they're right and think it's a good narrative, but they don't want to partner with them. And so men should think, I want to take advantage of my maleness. I want to be aggressive. I want to set goals, go hard at it. I want to be physically really strong. I want to take care of myself. My view is that for masculinity, a decent place to start is garnering the skills and strength that you can advocate for and protect others with. If you're really strong and smart, you will garner enough power, influence, kindness to begin protecting others. That is it. Full stop. Real men protect other people. Most of these figures are scaffolded by, uh, scaffolded by biology. All are associated with testosterone, the male sex hormone. It's not an excuse for boys will be boys style bad behavior. But realistically, these traits would be better acknowledged and harnessed for pro-social aims than stifled or downplayed. The essentialist view that it's in men's nature to be brave, stoic, and in charge while men, women remain docile, nurturing, and submissive would be dire news for social equality 
and for the vast numbers of individuals who don't fit those stereotypes. Biology isn't destiny. There is no one script for how to be a woman or a man. But despite a push by some advocates to make everything from bathrooms to birthing gender neutral, most people don't actually want a complete androgynous society. Many of the young men I talked to for this essay told me that they had troubled relationships with their fathers or no father figure in their lives at all. The data bear this out. Since 1960, the percentage of boys living apart from their biological fathers has nearly doubled from 17% to 32%. So one in three are not with their biological father. And while progressive had embraced the rise of single-parent and female-led homes, or at least assumed them to be inevitable as a new status quo, it's still clear that male role models help boys especially to thrive. 90% of this, if not 95, is on us, is on older men, is on society, Galloway said. To realize this is a problem that warrants investment and attention. Now, the article author states that, quote, In my ideal, the mainstream could embrace a model that acknowledges male particularity and difference, but doesn't denigrate women to do so. It's a vision of gender that is not androgynous, but still equal, and relies on character, not just biology. And it acknowledges that certain themes, protector, provider, even procreator, still resonate with many men and should be worked with, not against. So that's the article. And while I amen those last statements particularly, I would like to add that this narrative we've seen here is is that this is a tough guy, macho, manosphere fad is really a toxic rebound romance, an overreaction to the bullying of women in the public square, who in turn were kept down for thousands of years. These are out-of-the-frying-pan-and-into-the-fire type reactions, like those who are fed up with American foreign policy and then run to the arms of Vladimir Putin, or from capitalism to communism, or Christianity to other religions. You know, I'm really just starting to believe... We need to just each cut each other the most slack with the least expectations of each other. How about we just stick to expecting the golden rule from ourselves and from others and having our, our own stuff together by meeting our own responsibilities and just associating with those that we feel are constructive for us while giving room for people to grow, you know, unless we're helping a person and raising them up. Now, this is a standard I think that can apply, can apply to women or men both. Well, before we review a, a historical section from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, uh, if, if time permits, we need to take a break for more music for meditation. Now, this topic of how to raise a generation of men beneficial to society reminded me of a famous 1969 song by the soul group The Winstons called Color Him Father about a boy looking up to his stepfather who stepped in and married his mom and her seven children when her first husband died in Vietnam. Ironically, the flip side of the 45, called Amen Brother, 
had the most sampled drum break in music history, being used at least 15,000 times on songs like Straight Outta Compton. Enjoy Color Him Father, and then we'll be back to the Two Spies Report. big and strong he goes to work each day and he stays all day long he comes home each night looking tired and beat he sits down at the dinner table and has a bite to eat never a frown always a smile when he says to me how's my child I said that I've been studying hard all day in school trying very hard to understand the golden rule I think I'll color this man father. Color him father. I think I'll color him love. Color him love. Said I'm gonna color him father. Color him father. I think I'll color the man love. Yes, I will. Color him father. He says education is the thing if you want to compete. Because without his son, life ain't very sweet. I love this man and I don't know why. Except I'll need his strength until the day that I die My mother loves him and I can tell By the way she looks at him when he holds my little sister Nell I heard her say just the other day That if it hadn't have been for him, she couldn't have found her way I think I'll color him father I'm gonna color him love Color him father. Color him father. I think I'll color this man love. Color him father. Our real old man, he got killed in the war. And she knows she and seven kids couldn't have gotten very far. She says she thought that she could never love again. And then there he stood with that big wide grin. He married my mother and he took us in And now we belong to the man with that big white dream I've got to color this man father Color him father I'm gonna color him love Color him love I've got to color him father Color him father I believe I'll color this man love Color him love He's just been so good to me Color him father I know I've got to color him love Well, friends, that's another edition of the Two Spies Report. I'm afraid we're going to have to stop here because we're out of time. Although I really wanted to get into the next segment uh, from the review of my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News, which I encourage you to obtain in print or ebook form at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or elsewhere. Because when we resume this discussion next time, we're going to find out a little bit more about how the folks at Christian Economics, who really formed the opinion of conservative Christianity, 
on how to look at the stranger, the people in countries outside our own country, and how we should treat them as a nation, and get a little bit more into what the impact that that organization had on the clergy at the time from their own internal studies, and then proceed further into uh, outside studies of the next generation of religious right leaders and the businessmen and kingpins and industry that were actually bankrolling them for the next generation of this type of reinvention of the gospel. Please send any comments about the show or questions to twospiesreport at gmail.com. That's T-W-O-S-P-I-E-S report at gmail.com. These are for questions or comments for us to discuss on air. Please note if it's not to be shared in broadcast, and we'll do our best to respond to everyone. Please join us back here at 5 p.m. Central each Thursday at Radio Free Nashville, WRFN at 107.1 and 103.7 FM on the dial, or streaming live online at www.radiofreenashville.org. See you next Thursday at 5. Until then, keep exploring like the two spies, assessing and staying positive, and be willing to stand against the crowd. Good evening. Walking down the road with the good book in my hand. Telling all my friends about the promised land Of the joy they'll find there And the peace of mind